0: episode of This Is HCD. CD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human-centred service design practitioner based in the wonderful city of Dublin, Ireland. I'm the founder of This Is HCD, CD and I'm delighted to welcome Jeff Gotthelf onto the show today. Jeff, as many of you will probably be familiar with his name, has created several awesome books over the last decade in particular. Having a look at his website here, you can see that he offers coaching, consulting, training, and keynotes. Just looking at the books that Jeff has created over the last maybe 10 years, Lean UX is the one that really was the breakout that many of us uh, really helped transform the user experience practice and really helped sort of get it going within organizations all over the world. Now, over the last maybe six or seven years, um, Jeff has been working primarily in helping organizations implement OKRs and that's what we're going to be speaking about in this episode. He um, has been really focused on helping set the conditions for organizations to create better products and services. So no better man than just having a conversation about what OKR means, what are the stumbling blocks? A lot of the conditions that I would ask myself when I go into organizations and I work with them or for them, I often ask these questions about how are these conditions set? And Jeff is extremely knowledgeable and extremely open as well. He's been a phenomenal guest on the show. So if you are just like myself, curious about OKRs and how they impact our work and what we can do to set the conditions as design leaders, to make them more prolific and more prominent within the organization, and ultimately set them up for success. And this is gonna be a great episode for you, okay? Jeff is absolutely fantastic. His book is gonna be coming out probably in the next year or so. Um, Don't quote me on that. But please check out jeffgodhealth.com. Check him out on LinkedIn. There's gonna be a link in the show notes or in the description if you're watching this on YouTube. Any of these books here that you see on the screen are well worth purchasing. They are absolutely fantastic. As you can see, I've actually got one here, *Sense and Respond, uh, second last book. It is a great book and a great read. Definitely one that you'll come back to time and time again as you look to hone your craft as a change maker. Listen, there's also a few other things I wanted to draw your attention to. We obviously have got a premium feed on This Is Hate CD. Become part of the hate city movement. It really helps support us all of the content creators that have worked alongside me over the last six or seven years it would be so fantastic if we you got your support it's 3.99 a month you get access to the full back catalog of all the episodes on this s cd the feed that you have in your player at the moment is restricted you only have uh, access to the last six month episodes so if you want to get access to everything that goes back all the way over until 2017 This is a great way to support the podcast get access to the episodes early and you know be able to ask me questions if you want to ask questions you can reach out there as well but anyway let's jump straight into this episode with Jeff Jeff is awesome I know you're going to love it if you've got any questions reach out to us and I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode thanks for listening and enjoy it Jeff, we can kick it off because I know you're a busy man and you're flying all around the world doing important stuff, uh, meeting and Murphy and having beers with your friends for 50th birthdays. It's coming and up. let start off, yeah. maybe um, for people who don't know who you are, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and what you do, Jeff.
1: Absolutely. Um, so my name is Jeff Godhealth, and I, these days at least, I work as a keynote speaker and as a trainer and as a coach for large and medium-sized organizations, helping them build more collaborative cultures, teaching them product management, teaching them Lean UX, teaching them OKRs, and working with the leadership teams to help them build the kind of organizations and cultures and processes that support these modern ways of working. So I do that at kind of the leadership level and the team level. Um, My background is design. I used to be an information architect. I started as a web designer in the late nineties, just kind of did markup and graphic design, moved into information architecture, UX design, uh, interaction design, eventually started leading teams. And then what was interesting was when I started leading teams about 10 years into my career, I was forced to reconcile design and agile. Yeah. And that was a really interesting question in 2008 mm. because in 2008 there wasn't a whole lot of positive anything about design and agile. And mm. so but but I had to solve it because I had a team and I had it I had an organization that was moving into kind of more agile ways of working and I had to figure it out. And so we were lucky enough to be able to run experiments. I wrote about those experiments and where we netted out was a process called that we called lean UX. Yeah. And that's turned into my first book with Josh Seiden. And then that book really changed my life because it did Mm -hmm. well, it continues to do well, and people really want to know how to practically apply. The yeah. what I thought were practical ideas in the book, and so I spent a lot of my time teaching the ideas from that book to various teams and organizations. And so yeah. that's kind of my background. I've written a few books since then, um, and yeah. these days I work as a solo uh, solopreneur. Very popular. Yeah. Uh, very popular these term. days. Yeah. Um, I did start a design uh, a product studio for a few years again with Josh Seiden and Giff Constable. And after four years, we ended up selling it, and then I've been on my own for the last eight years or so.
0: Yeah, very good. It's a great background. Like with the um, the lean UX stuff around that time, user experience and UX was still kind of finding its feet. Mm-hmm. It was kind of finding itself in places that we didn't think it was going to find ourselves in. You know, tech businesses, software businesses it was an obvious home for it. Yeah, how did you? um find the hidden value to sell and explain user experience to the businesses that didn't get it then and what can we learn from that about carrying it forward for okrs cuz where we're at that point now yeah you know it's interesting
1: i lived on the west coast briefly um 2006 2007 west coast of the united states 2006 yeah. 2007 and when i moved back in 2007 I got a job at an agency, um, and I asked the woman who ran that agency. Mm. I said, "Tell me about how you value UX and UX design, because I have a couple of job offers, yeah. and you know, if I'm going to choose to work for you, I need to know that you understand and value what I bring to the table. And I got this very beautifully written paragraph about the importance of UX to the practice and to the clients and to the work that we do. And it sold me. And I took the gig and I spent a year there suffering, creating, you know, 100 page wireframe decks and design requirements documents that never really saw the light of day. And when I left after a year of frustration and got my next job, I I went to my boss, who was not the woman who wrote that letter. I went to my boss and I said, listen, a year ago, I came here. I'm quitting. A year ago, I came came here. here. (laughs) One of the main reasons I came here was this letter. I printed it out and I kind of held it up for her. I said, this letter uh, from the boss. And she said, yeah, I wrote that for her. (laughs) You're joking me. No, no. That's what she said. And I I said, that makes perfect sense to me now. I understand. Um, And that was mean (laughs) and you tricked me and you shouldn't have done that to me. And, and so I learned a lot, I think during that time, both uh, sort of how to, how to discover whether or not an organization values design, but then Mm. also how to sell it to clients and other organizations. And I think what I really liked was that in, in subsequent work, the conversations that I led that were designed to increase awareness and appreciation for the design work that we were doing, always focused on the business problems that we were solving and the impact that good design work was going to have on the business. The reality, I went to work for a a high growth startup after that agency, and the reality is that as much as he also pretended to care about it, the founder slash CEO, he loved spreadsheets you know mm-hmm. and, and my work didn't show up in spreadsheets not on a daily basis anyway. yeah. and so when we sat down to have meaningful conversations about the design work that we were doing it was always positioned anchored in and using the language of business right and i think to yeah. me that was a clear uh, a clear win over the years that that i've translated over and over and over again is to really trans- translate is what it is you're translating mm-hmm the work that you're doing into a language that your audience cares about. And that makes a tremendous difference.
0: Yeah. Around that time, there was um, a lot of people writing popular blogs about user experience, certain podcasts were starting up. Um, But what was really happening at that time, I believe, was like the foundational understanding of the value of what this could bring to businesses, new opportunities, alignment of uh the customer or the person using the product or services needs and how we can actually go about meeting those those needs and expectations so with OKRs, and we're having a little bit of a private joke here because in ireland we say or uh, for, for the letter or <laughs> so i'm going to be over enunciating r for the rest of this because i don't want to give jeff any kind of mileage but in OKRs, um, what do you see as being the main blockers um, and what, what are the, the kind of bits holding it back in terms of it getting to that level of foundational understanding within organizations?
1: So John Doerr wrote a book, John Doerr, the venture capitalist, yeah. um, who's now trying to fight climate change. Thank you, John Doerr. Good um, on, John. He wrote a book called Measure What Matters mm. and he, Every CEO and leader in the world seems to have a copy of that book. Well, I don't know if they've read it or not, but they understand that it's a book about OKRs. That is a service that John Doerr did us. He introduced mm. the concept to the to the people who have influence over the organizations where we work. Yeah. He also did us a disservice. Is that in that he was not adamant about the specifics of what should be included in an objective statement and mm. what should be included in a key result statement. And so the takeaway for most of these organizations is we're going to rebrand our goals as OKRs and everything will continue as it was before. Mm. That's not how I see it working. And I, I think that that was a disservice that was done. And so that, that the main blocker is coming into organizations who essentially believe that they've rebranded their existing goal setting framework as OKRs and not a whole lot has to change. Yeah. And I come in and I say, actually, this is a fundamentally different way of setting goals. And they say, well, why is it different? I said, well, because your objective has to be a qualitative statement, right? Your objective can't be um, you know, sell more stuff. Or, or or gain more customers, or build the dashboard, or the mobile app, or whatever it is, right? Your objective is a qualitative, uh, strategic, al- strategically aligning statement for the team about what you're trying to do as a team. We're trying to build the easiest way to buy furniture online in Europe, right? We're trying to uh, create the most user friendly a uh, mortgage application in the financial services sector, what, mm. whatever it is like, we're going to align the team. This is the motivation. This is why we get out of bed every morning, yeah. right? Dashboard. That doesn't get me out of bed in the morning, making it really easy for people to apply for a mortgage, right? Or maybe we can even you know, make it easy for low-income people to apply yeah. for a mortgage. Wow. I'll get out of bed for that. Yeah. So that's number one. Right? So that's one blocker is getting folks to think qualitatively about why they're doing something. Most folks are hmm. like, well, my boss said dashboard. So, I'm dashboard. Building it. <laughs> you know, um, and then the key results is where this gets interesting, different, and very tricky. The fundamental difference that makes OKRs powerful is the qualitative side of the, of the objective, and then the key results being metrics that are measures of human behavior. And that's the key difference, right? So so we're setting goals that said we want to make it we want to make the most the the, the simplest way for low-income people to apply for a mortgage. Terrific. How will we know we have done that? Well, we want to see a, a 75% increase in the number of low-income folks applying for a mortgage. Mm-hmm. We want to see half of those folks completing that process successfully. And we'd like to see, you know, 15% at least uh, increase in the approval rates. Some, something along those lines.
0: Yeah, right? tangible.
1: But what you'll notice I didn't talk about there at all was what we are building. The mm-hmm. only thing I talked about in the objective and the key results was the qualitative goal and the changes in human behavior that will tell us that we've achieved the qualitative goal. I mean, that's it's a simple, it's a simple idea, right? I just explained yeah. it to you, like that's it. That's okay, done.
0: It's the, it's really the collective, um, collaboration of pieces within the ecosystem to get that outcome. So it's agnostic to digital or agnostic to exactly. That's yeah, that's it, the key piece.
1: Yeah, it has nothing to do with digital product development. Yeah. In fact, right, and that's a beautiful thing. It's like it's a forty-year-old idea, yeah. and I mean, Andy Grove at Intel came up with it, but it's it's not unique to tech. But fundamentally, so, so, but it's a goal setting framework for teams. Yeah. So usually the goal that's set for teams is build the dashboard, build the mobile app. Yeah. Launch the campaign, you know, uh, deploy the new policy, whatever it is, right? Build the website. What we're saying here now is I need you to get more low income people applying for a mortgage
0: through our website. Okay. And I didn't tell you how to do it. Exactly. And that's the piece. You didn't tell them. You weren't specific. You you lean on your employees to become springboards and give them the opportunities to solve the problem. I mean, d- dare we trust them to do their jobs? Yeah, <laughs> You know,
1: let's let's not get crazy here, Jerry. But,
0: yeah, but that's the bit, honestly, like that, you know, a hundred times more about OKRs than, than I do. Um, and I don't really train it enough because I feel like, okay, there's probably people who are more, kind of qualified to to talk about OKRs, but that as its fundamental piece is what I really, um, you know, align with it, that it doesn't be specific enough and relies on the intelligence of the collective to really empower that whole kind of meeting of the needs. Yeah. So when you're thinking like this um, and you go into an organization, who typically do you see is creating the OKRs and who should be creating the OKRs. OKRs. Now I'm starting to sound like a pirate. Um, The OKRs.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, The common pattern with the clients that I work with is the OKRs are driven top down. So the leadership Mm. team will set strategic OKRs and then they'll say, "Okay, business unit A, these are your OKRs, business unit B, these are yours, C, these are yours. And then the leaders of those organizations will then deploy OKRs down to the various teams. That's the way that we typically see it. Um, yeah. A much more effective way to do it is top down and bottom up. So top down is right to an extent. We need mm-hmm. a strategic focus for the organization, and ownership, and then and then we need measures of that strategic direction, and those essentially become a, an organizational level OKR. But then. The leaders of that organization need to ask the people who are doing the work, okay, how can what you're working on support the overall vision of the organization? And what would be the goals that you would work towards that you believe are leading indicators of Mm. success for the organizational OKRs? And and what that does, it does a couple of things. Number one is it allows each team to set its own goals and a team that signs itself up for goals that it came up with on its own is far more motivated to hit those goals than if they were given to them. Yeah. That's number one. Yeah. Number two is those teams can provide those goals within, and they should within a, a, the sphere of influence that they have. And so what I mean by that is all too often an anti-pattern that we see is the goals revenue. All of you on the hook for all of you on the hook for revenue. And it's like, okay, but I'm on the authentication team, right? Like my job is to get people into the product successfully. Like I understand that three, four, five, six steps downstream that impacts revenue, but I work on authentication. If we give the teams autonomy over setting their own goals, they can say, okay, great, look, our job is to build the, the smoothest authentication process in the, you know, B to C financial services world, whatever it is, Yeah. Right? And how do we know? There's a 90% decrease in the number of people calling customer service about authentication. There is a 50% increase in the number of folks authenticating successfully in a first try and whatever, some other third measure, maybe two are enough in that particular case. What we've done here is, is we've given the team the autonomy to set their own goals. In a world that they can control, right? but that they can also tell a compelling story about how it connects to the organizational goals. If people mm. authenticate successfully, then they get to the product page much more quickly. They add to card and then they shop and they buy, we make money, but I don't control any of that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's faster. right? And so that's, and, and so then we meet in the middle, right? Top down, bottom up, and, and, and the leaders have to approve it. So yeah, that makes sense. That's compelling. I think that's a leading indicator hmm let's do that but that's a far better way of doing it than just being told what your goals are
0: yeah in um greenfields blue sky whatever you want to say um approaches for organizations just implementing okrs for the first time i get it okay the bit that i sometimes struggle with and maybe you can help me with this one is when the okrs shift so things are already in the backlog that are aligned to the previously set OKRs. And now they're all of a sudden, they've inherited OKRs that haven't been hit and there's things in the backlog that still need to get done. How do you get around that um, where you've got suddenly legacy OKRs hanging in the backlog of uh, development and design teams?
1: There cannot be a, a, a point, there sh- no, let me rephrase, there shouldn't be a point yeah. in time where an OKR has languished for longer than a quarter, I'm going to say, sort of as as a a common and generic cycle time, right? Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be a situation where an OKR has languished for more than a quarter without somebody saying, does this still make sense? Are we still working towards this? How do we reconcile this with new information that we okay. have now collected? Yeah.
0: Right? That, so if, that, that still ha- if that's still happening and it's more of a, it's a scrum master, isn't it? It's more of a scrum, scrum master. master
1: product manager, yeah. design leader, whoever, right? But whoever recognizes that this thing exists, mm. it's just kind of hanging out there. And we've got all these other goals that are now coming up. We've got to decide because we can't do it all. Yeah. Maybe there's a relationship between those two things that makes sense. and We should figure mm-hmm. that out. And maybe there isn't, and maybe we say goodbye to the old metric or to one of the new ones, whatever. But we've got we've got to have that conversation or reconcile
0: it. Yeah. You seem like a really smart guy, Jeff. Okay, right. You're either one of two things: you're either correct or you're not. But you're doing something really right here. Uh-huh. I want to okay. ask you a question. We're going to light some three fictional Chinese lanterns of problems of OKRs that you can see. We're going to let them go here. Okay. <laughs> if you think of think of things like this, what what are the most common problems from an organizational perspective or an implementation of OKRs um, into an organization? What's the first lantern that we're going to light for Jeff to let go of and release it and feel the energy release from your body when we do it?
1: The, the toughest part is managing to outcomes. It's managing to human behavior yeah. because all of us, look, even even me, right? I mean, I've been working and teaching this stuff for 15 years. Yeah. Um, we love to think in features. We love to think in output. Right, I'm going to build mm. this amazing website. I'm going to I'm going to write this article. Right, I'm going to I'm going to write a book. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to commit two years of my life to writing a book. Right, and and we love to think that way, and then measure success in the in the deployment of the thing. We shipped the mm-hmm. vacation policy. I wrote the book. You know, we we built the the website, whatever it is. Um, organizations struggle to manage to outcomes because it's not binary, right? Making Mm -hmm. a thing, managing the output is binary, right? Did you make the thing? Yeah, here it is. Terrific, it's tangible, you did your job, I can measure that, and if I can measure it, I can manage it and reward it. Did you increase retention by 50%? Well, we increased retention by 27%, okay? Here's what we learned. Here's what we would do if, if you let us continue working towards this. But it's a much more difficult conversation. Well, did the team succeed? Did it fail? Mm. Um, what Do I punish them? Do I reward them? Do I, you know, fire them? Like all of these, it becomes really difficult. And so reorienting an organization around managing the outcomes, changes in human behavior, be super clear about what I mean when I say mm. outcomes, right, is... Really, really difficult. That's the biggest lantern that we are going to yeah. release.
0: That's into. the first one.
1: Yeah. All right. What's the second one? The second one is if you can get the organization to agree to writing good OKR statements, good by my definition of good, yeah. to be super clear, where the key results are measures of human behavior, right? And there's no features in the yeah, objective or in the key results. Then the next step becomes, well, now What? And this is where organizations kind of hit the next hurdle. They, they, mm-hmm. they don't know how to choose what to work on. They don't know how to decide if it's a good thing to work on or, mm-hmm. or bad. And, and this is really where design and research begin to shine yeah. because this is where product discovery thrives, right? Mm-hmm. And this is why I love OKRs because I, I believe OKRs done well create the explicit need for design and research to take place because there is an infinite number of options Hmm. for every team to achieve their objective and key result goals. Literally an infinite combination of code, copy, design, value, proposition, business model, pricing model, go to market strategy, all that stuff. Right. There's literally an infinite, which combination is best. Yeah. Right. You know, and and we, no no matter how much somebody gets paid in your organization, they don't know. And you don't know. You have good guesses. They have good guesses. And so we need to do design work. We need to do research work. We need to do product discovery and organizations don't know how to do that or don't allow that work to take place. And that's, that's a really big next challenge. Right. So we, we got, we got the goals in place. But now the teams are like, you always tell me what to make. I don't know what to make.
0: It's just coming out of out of the abyss. What's your thoughts then with, say, the likes of triple track agile? Um, triple track? What's the third? I know two. I know dual track. What's the third track? I got
1: di- delivery discovery. What's the third?
0: The tri- triple track is more around the the discovery of, you know, implementation of research. You're just essentially giving yourself another track. For that uh, experimentation to occur. Have you yeah, any experience so, with that? Because so we call this out it
1: dual the track agile, <laughs> right? Yeah, triple track the, the, Well, the, the two tracks are, uh, and I think Marty Kagan co- coined this term, but the, the, the two tracks are delivery and discovery. Okay. Right. And so, all like delivery, like I think design operates in both spaces because if we're going to mm. deliver work, we have to design the actual work. If we're going to do, do discovery work, or we're going to do some research, some experimentation, some design work. And then that goes into the, the backlog. backlog. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you, you know, dual track agile as a concept is sound. And this is kind of where a third sort of lantern of pain can be floated away <laughs> is that I love um, the
0: fact you're still going with it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've let it go. Listen, I'm,
1: we promised people three. I've only yeah. done two. I'm not. I'm not going to be the guy who lets the audience The story down. arc. Yeah, exactly. The we're going to land this plane, Jerry. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> it's gonna be awesome. Um, <laughs> is that uh, most organizations will divide that work into mm-hmm. two teams? So you've got a delivery team who's making stuff, and you've got a discovery team that's researching. Stuff and that is a massive anti-pattern because as soon as you have that, you've got handoffs. As soon as you've got handoffs, you've got um, editorializing because that's what humans do when we tell stories and biases, and you break the shared understanding and the flow and the efficiency of a dual-track process, a lean UX process, whatever you want to call it, right? Customer uh, product discovery, and and so that's a really big pain point there as well. Is that we want one? It's two types of work. But it's one team doing both uh, both types of work.
0: I'm just taking note of something there. Um, so the triple track is I'm gonna take that bit out of the episode, I think, because it's just I'm pretty sure if someone else has spoken to me about triple
1: ne- track, I don't know what the third track would be.
0: Yeah. Uh I well, maybe I'm mis mis mispronouncing, maybe it's dual track that I was. I don't get into this stuff. I get into the agile. I'm just like, okay, cool. just give me, give me the training program. Um, so when you're talking about measuring the OKRs, Jeff, right? The the bit that I've noticed when I'm training businesses, they it comes to the crunch time where there's like they're they're going to evaluate, is there a, a metric? That, or are we hitting this metric? Yeah. How do you advise teams to be able to continuously measure? Um, over time, uh, like and is there an opportunity there to to improve that process? So there are at least two sides to
1: every conversation. when it comes to measuring, there's quantitative yeah. and there's qualitative. When it comes to quantitative, we want to use the tools that we have at our disposal to mm-hmm. measure what people are currently doing and what they're doing after we start to build some of these experiments and launch some of these new ideas. If you're working in a digital space, it means instrumenting your products and services with analytics tools so that you can go back and measure what people are doing in that conversation. Can if, I whisper
0: something in this this bit here around NPS? Uh,
1: let's talk about that in a second. Let, let, okay. Let's 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 talk about NPS in just a second. Um, I think if you're working in a in a physical space, like you're building a service, right? You're building a you know, kind of a wayfinding system for an airport. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to require you probably going to the airport and observing and literally counting people and seeing how many people get lost and ask for directions or or miss a gate or whatever it is, those types of things, right? The other side of the conversation is qualitative. You have to talk to people regularly, consistently to understand why they're behaving in the ways that you're measuring, right? Why did you choose the left hallway instead of the right hallway? Oh, because the arrow was pointing that way. Okay, great. I understand now. Um, why did you click the red button over the blue button, right? Well, I didn't even see the blue button because it's on a blue background, what, whatever mm. it is, right? So you want to ask people, I didn't understand what the text on the button meant. And so you want to get the, the quantitative and the qualitative yeah. to understand what's happening. But th- both of these are, th- are two sides of the same story. You need both to decide how to move forward. And you need that information continuously. This is something that Every cycle, whether it's a sprint or whether it's, it's, it's whatever you're, you're, the cycle time is that you're using, okay. this happens every time.
0: So it's not a case of leaving it for 12 weeks later when the next quarter comes up and saying A, result, B, result. Ideally, no. Continuously. I love that because it encourages organizations to do the research. Yeah, to learn continuously. I mean, look, there will be contexts
1: yeah. where you can't get the, inf- the, the data back immediately. Right, it's going to take a week or two or three to really get anything meaningful back. You're not waiting for statistical significance, but you're looking for something meaningful, um, and that's okay, right? But generally, continuously, we want to be learning.
0: So I mentioned the um, I was going to say the dreaded three letters, but I'm kind of I don't know whether to weave this into this episode, folks. But I'll I'll go I'll go there. It's a it's a potential bomb. But NPS, so when it comes to this, um when you're measuring it, still the most common three letters that I hear at this stage is the NPS score goes up. Um what's your take on this, um Jeff?
1: I wrote a blog post a couple of years back called NPS is a waste of time.
0: Oh, I think I remember this. Is the we you say KFC. Is this the uh, KFC? No, 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 What do you mean Jared Spool? or it's might have been Jared Spool,
1: yeah. But it, it was around the time that Jared was also railing against uh, NPS. NPS. I mean, look, even the guy who made NPS, who invented it, is now like, well, it's not that great. Here's the problem. I, I, look, here's the pro- net, net promoter score, right? Asks people to rate how likely they are to recommend something, to, a, to recommend an experience to a friend On a scale of one to 10. Yeah. Right. And so let's talk about a couple, a couple of the problems with that. I'll talk about some of the more minor ones and then the biggest one, right? Hmm. Uh, The, the, minor one is, um, how lucky you to recommend Jerry's podcast to a friend
0: very, 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 very much so. Right. Six. Screw right. you, Jeff.
1: No, no, but like, is that, but why is six bad? Like, does that, does that mean
0: that like, if 10 people ask me, six 10s, times Jeff out of 10?
1: No, but like, if 10 this people isn't ask me- This going
0: out, this episode is going straight in the can. Right. <laughs> 12 out of 10. Better. <laughs> there you go.
1: Um, but my point is, it's it's all meaningless. Like a yeah. six or a seven, like, what does that even mean? Right? Like, you know, a, a the other challenge with NPS, and this is by far the biggest problem with NPS, is that it asks people to predict future behavior. Yeah. Right? Exactly. How likely are you to recommend this to a friend? 12 out of 10. <laughs> right? Have you ever yeah. recommended it to a friend? Nope. No. <laughs> right? This is why Netflix isn't Netflix doesn't ask, are how likely are you to recommend Netflix to a friend? They ask when you sign up, they say, did someone recommend Netflix to you? Right? Oh, yeah, and, and so, and so that is, a, that's a, a thing that actually happened in the future. We never make mistakes. We always do the right thing. We always do the best thing and we never disappoint the person who's asking us the question about what we're going to do in the future. Right? My, yeah. my business partner, Josh, when he talks about this, he always uses the, the example, particularly when we're teaching him, And if we're on the road, he will use it as an example of breakfast. Uh, you know, Jeff, what are you going to have for breakfast? tomorrow oh well i like to have a healthy breakfast i like to have like half a grapefruit black coffee and maybe like a, you know a piece of toast like that's it great jeff what did you have for breakfast this morning sure. right well i was at the hotel and they had the most amazing buffet and i had bacon and eggs and potatoes yeah. and you know you know, a pudding and hot chocolate and waffles and all that stuff, right? We always want to talk to people about what they have done recently, rather yeah. than what because because again, I don't want to. I don't necessarily want to admit to you that I'm going to eat that in the future. So I'm going to tell you something that makes me feel good about myself. I'm going to eat a healthy breakfast tomorrow. Yeah, right. That's that's, that's the flaw with NPS. And so I want to say one more thing about NPS um, because there's no getting rid of it. <laughs> Yeah, right. It's, too, it's, it's too on bad. every executive dashboard, right? And so when that comes up, if you're working towards OKRs and some boss somewhere says, what about NPS? You can say, okay, boss, let's, let's keep NPS as a, as a kind of a corporate barometer and then ask them this question, okay? Hmm. What behavior do satisfied people do in our product or service? What behavior do dissatisfied people exhibit? in our product or service and then let's work on optimizing those things
0: yeah there's a couple of episodes in the back catalog just on nps folks where we um i think i might have used the bullshit word a couple of times but um they're still up there if you're on premium but i have a couple of more questions jeff because i know um we're going to try and wrap it up on time In terms of scaling OKRs in organizations, I know the new book that you're working on with Jeff. um, Give us the title again. It's called Who Does What By How Much? Okay. So what I really liked about um, the prelude when we were chatting about this is it's for everyone. Okay, so it's everybody is involved in, in the delivery of a service or product within that ecosystem. How do you envisage it's going to work with the new book coming out. Like, you know, are we hoping for organizations to buy 5,000 copies and give them to all 5,000 employees? Yes, yeah. we will. That would be really nice. And uh, if you want to find out more, you can go to jeffgodhelp.com and do an order. Only joking. But if, if you have an organization like that, there's obviously an educational piece around defining what an OKR is and the training aspect of it. And really educating the organization about everybody's involvement and how it all correlates. Um, a book is one part of that. What other things do organizations need to do to really successfully implement it, do you think?
1: Yeah. So, so the book is designed to be that book, right? So that, that, that the organization 000. buys for okay. everybody in the company, nice. ideally. Look, on top of that, you're going to need coaching, right? Some level of training and coaching. Some, yeah. Somebody to come in and say, I know you've read the book let's talk about it in your context corporate you know li- corporate lawyer right let's talk yeah. about it in your context I, di- I did this I did this exercise uh, a few months ago with a shoe company right yeah. and and while they certainly have digital people and they've got marketing people they've got shoe designers and mm-hmm. and as, as as clearly as I can I can teach and explain this in, in in the generic sense the shoe designer came to me and said how does this make sense in my world yeah. Right. And so you've got to walk people through. You've got to do some coaching, some training that's contextual to the specific folks where this is particularly foreign or new. And that really helps to bring this home. I think, look, in larger organizations, and what I've seen across larger organizations is that they build transformation teams mm-hmm. to support this. And those transformation teams serve as the in house coaches, the in house advocates as well as the folks who bring in external support to help kind of disseminate the ideas broadly. But you need a consistent um, conversation and then you need people that the staff can go to and ask questions comfortably.
0: Okay, and is that a service that Jeff and Josh offer? Coincidentally,
1: (laughs) yes, that is a
0: service that (laughs) we offer. Thank you for asking. I need to finish the paragraph. Um, But in terms of that shoe designer, yeah. Tell me, give me an example of how you distilled down yeah. their impact.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so the shoe designer makes shoe designs, but those, and so the question that becomes, and this is the question that we ask anybody, who consumes the shoe design, right? So the shoe design is consumed by the go-to-market people, the merchandisers, the, um, the people who have to procure materials.
0: Okay, the making yeah,
1: of yeah. the shoe. Let's just talk about those three people. There are probably some others, but at least those three folks. The way that the shoe designer has traditionally delivered those designs may not be the most effective way to make those people successful. So those three people are his customers. Hmm. Right? He has to think of them yeah, as yeah. his customers. And he needs to make them successful. So what is it that the merchandiser needs from the shoe design deliverable to make their life easier? What about yeah. the procurement person who's buying, you know, leather and rubber and, exactly. and laces, right? Uh, that to me is, is a, is a concept that most folks mm. don't think about. They don't Absolutely. think about their work that way. And that's, that's yeah. the fundamentally different conversation.
0: I love the fact because organizations inherently by default are complex. So, so many they they're a complex ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing here, folks, is OKRs is help helping disseminate that and make it into a complicated scenario that can be broken down into executionable parts. Yeah. And that's why if you look at frameworks like Kinevan and stuff, that this is really it's a powerful um framework, I guess, to to get to that. To get to that point. On one last question is where do you see the future? um Because like looking back at Lean UX, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, UX got adopted. It's kind of gone through a rebrand for the last couple of years. It's product design. It's whatever. But when you look at OKRs, it would be great if organizations got to that point where it was widely adopted, and um we were talking about OKRs as part of, you know, the design toolkit. Maybe sure. What do you see the future of OKRs and how does it weave within the world for changemakers?
1: I think it's inevitable that this becomes just the way that we work. And, and, and here's why. Um, we build companies and, and organizations on top mm. of technology. It's how we keep the business running. It's how we scale the business. It's how we optimize it. It's how we react to changes in the world. The technology that supports our businesses and our organizations isn't static. It's, it's dynamic, it's continuous. And th- the better we get at deploying this technology, the faster it becomes, the easier it becomes. And so the, the old measures of success of making a thing and shipping it, they don't make sense anymore when you can ship something every day right or if even every hour or if you can make a change on a weekly basis um those that that measure of success doesn't mean anything anymore on top of that our customers our users the people who who we serve their expectations are changing daily weekly yeah. monthly based on all of the new products that they're consuming and mm. if we're not able to react to those changes in in consumer behavior and consumption patterns then we fall behind and we fail. And so I, I suspect that at some point, the the look we're fi- we're fighting a hundred years of manufacturing history and you know yeah. MBAs and and business school um, right now. So there's, there's there's an immense sort of historical inertia that is sure. making this difficult. But that's gonna that's gonna fall behind as as kind of technology continues to to kind of rule the world here. And so I I can easily see a point in time in the next, I'm going to say decade, let's be optimistic, conservative, get optimistic, where this is just the way that we set goals and we stop mentioning these things by
0: name, I hope. So 2008, 2009, Jeff was probably just about aware of OKRs at that point. Is that fair to say? Managing the outcomes. I don't
1: think we were calling them OKRs just yet. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So your book is one that's coming out now with Jeff and Josh which neat. sounds like a TV show, doesn't it? Um, but what other people are you following who are pushing the craft of OKR? I mean, Christina
1: Whitkey is, yeah. has been at the forefront of this for years. Yeah, yeah, you know, right. she's, she's been our inspiration and she's, she's a smart voice on this topic. Her book, Radical Focus, I think in second edition now, really foundational, I think for a lot yeah. of folks about, about this concept, uh, that goes a long way. um, you know i think people out there like jeff patton who are teaching mm. what he calls passionate product ownership to yeah. more agile minded folks are a great uh, a great force for good and then i would add that that folks like teresa torres who you know build communities and teach them how to do product discovery mm. enable us to use okrs more effectively because the more people that know how to do product discovery the more likely we are to get these goals to stick
0: yeah one last point. Um, I remember a number of years ago, um, we were talking about Ikigai and your purpose and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we recently had Hector Garcia on the podcast, mm-hmm. uh, who authored the Journey to Ikigai. Yeah. Where do you see your own self and your own purpose going in the next five to ten years?
1: I. That's a good question. Thank you. I, I um. I would like my goal. I think in all of this is to mm. hold. I think if I, can make, if I can help folks make their customers more successful, that's a win for me. While at the same time, helping those same folks do better work, be happier at work as part of that, that's the dual purpose here for me, right? So if, if we're looking sort of that, what motivates me the most, it's both of those things, right? Let's help make your folks successful. And in the process of doing that, Let's make you happy at work and able to do what you've been hired to do.
0: Yeah. And what about you, like in terms of Jeff behind all of this stuff? What's the, what's the sense of purpose that you get from writing these books?
1: Well, it I, I, turns out, and I, if you would ask me this 15 years ago, I'd be shocked at my answer 15 years later. I really like teaching. Yeah. Um, I, I've really fallen in love with, with teaching. I've discovered a passion for it. It turns out I'm pretty good at it. Um, which I, again, like I had no idea like that, that I, I, even had any, any predilection for this. And to me, I, I genuinely like when you can get this concept across to someone and their face lights up and you're like, oh yes, I get it. Uh, that makes me happy.
0: So you think th- this is your Ikigai, you know, you found, as they say in Japan, like this is, this is, you found this sense of purpose yeah, in your I, life. I
1: like teaching and, and I'd like to continue teaching this stuff. Um, for as long as it makes sense.
0: Yeah. It comes across, Jeff, like it's not something like sometimes you've had people on the podcast where I feel like they're they're regurgitating stuff and they just kind of go like, this This is like you can see when you're talking about it, you're like, this is, gets you up out of bed in the morning.
1: It does. It does. And it makes sense to me. So if I can make it make sense for other folks, that's a win that's for good. me.
0: That's good. Look, Jeff. I end every episode on this is Hate City by thanking the guests for you know being put on the spot, showing their vulnerability, and giving me their time and energy. So thank you so much for for giving me your time and energy today. It's been really good chatting with you. I'll put a link to all of this stuff um into the show notes. The book. Um, is there a place where people can go and pre-order it because it's out November the fifteenth.
1: Yeah, it will be on Amazon. It's not on there yet, but you can, once it's live on Amazon, we'll post it everywhere and then you can pre-order, yeah.
0: Yeah, if you go on to Jeff Goddard, I'm sure there's a place you can sign up to the newsletter and then Jeff exactly.
1: OKR-book.com. That's a great Ah, place to go. go.
0: Well, look, Jeff, thanks so much. Stay safe.
1: My pleasure, Jerry. Thank you so much for having me.